Behold, this is our God for, for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And now from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Born again to a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We are on these Sundays from Easter until Pentecost, which this year falls on Memorial Day weekend, as it often does, uh, celebrating Easter tide, the Easter season, and asking the question how are we to live in the Easter tide of the Christian life? And I come this morning to probably my very favorite text in all uh, of the Gospels. And it's because I can't read it without seeing myself here. Uh, I so often am like these two befuddled disciples on the very day of Christ's victory, walking away from Jerusalem downcast, depressed, wondering what in the world life has brought now. So read with me. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13, uh, the account of two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That very day, that is Easter day, <laughs> resurrection day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, 
Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. How could such a thing have happened? How could two of his disciples on the day of resurrection, having been told by the women that things were not as they had thought, that the tomb was empty, and the rumor out there that he had risen, how could they have left Jerusalem and be walking to Emmaus, cast down, depressed. How could it be? There are four questions I want to pose to this text, and that's the first one. How could they have walked away from Jerusalem on the day of resurrection? The second question is, how could they have failed to recognize Jesus when they encountered him on the road? The third question is, how did he make himself known to them? And finally, how does he make himself known to us when we meet him on the road? First, why were they downcast and depressed walking away from the very place where all of the dreams of humanity had just been made possible, where the power of sin and death itself had been broken? God had at last fulfilled his promise, entered into human history, 
kicked down death's doors from the inside, broken the power of everything that would separate us from him, all the things that he'd said he would do and that his word had said. How could they simply have missed it and be cast down on that day of days? Well, there's an obvious reason, and then there's a deeper reason that gets at the heart of it. The obvious reason is that he had been arrested by the Roman imperial power and had been crucified. In fact, John tells us in his account of the crucifixion that Cleopas's wife was one of the women, one of the Marys there witnessing. And so this guy had heard from his wife. He was crucified and he cried out and gave up his ghost. He died. They had no doubt. And you and I who are so accustomed to the story and are so used to wearing crosses as jewelry or in my case, having one tattooed to my arm, or, you know, we see the cross differently than they did. It was the supreme instrument of state-sponsored terrorism. All of them who lived in the empire had at times walked a road and seen perhaps a whole line of people hanging there, broken, crying out in their last gasps with the birds then settling on them to eat their flesh. The great Episcopal priest uh, who is in her 80s now and still, excuse me, but one of the greatest preachers uh, of my lifetime, Fleming Rutledge. And uh, the big laugh in RUF and the PCA is that while we don't believe in, in the ordination of women, almost all the guy's favorite preacher is Fleming Rutledge. Um, so you should get her books and read them. They're marvelous. But she has made this point and made it powerfully and has held it up before her peers and no one, she claims, has yet been able to refute her. She says if Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would never have known his name because the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people and we do not know the name of a single one of them. The act of crucifixion was an act of treating someone as less than human, saying, these people are not like you. All they deserve is to be nailed up here to die in agony, to have the birds eat their bodies and then to be forgotten forever. And there's no record of the name of another person who was crucified except Jesus who rose from the dead. Now later we believe from tradition that Peter was crucified upside down. But prior to Jesus, she claims that you will not find a single name. But he was raised from the dead. That's how horrifying crucifixion was. Nobody wanted to face it. That's why the disciples who had stood up just a few hours before his arrest and said, though everyone else run away from you, we won't. And yet they turned and ran when they realized where this was going to lead. And so 
in a human sense, it's easy to understand. Plus, they knew as well as anyone that dead people don't get up and, and walk. I mean, people sometimes think, well, of course, these myths about Jesus arose because this was an earlier age where I guess there was an age where people just thought folk died and then got back up. That's absurd. They knew that people that were killed didn't get back up. So they're leaving because they don't want to be captured and crucified. They don't want to be identified with this one whom they'd followed for fear that the same thing will happen to them. But there's a deeper reason. And that deeper reason is quite simply unbelief. They did not believe the scriptures that they had grown up studying, reading, praying for God to fulfill. They believed some of them. They believed Isaiah 54, in which God makes a covenant of peace with Israel and promises to forgive them for all of their sins. But they didn't talk much about Isaiah 53, where it said that before he would do that, he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brings us peace put on him, and with his stripes we would be healed. And so they're really walking away because of unbelief. Just as whenever I who preach these things to you and then receive devastating news about someone that I love, find myself going, Lord, where are you in the midst of this? And then, by God's grace, have to recognize that Jesus is there all the while. Why didn't they recognize him? Superficially, it says they were kept from recognizing him, but if you've ever been, well, I think it's been paved over now. Uh, back in um, 1997, I did a summer sabbatical at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and they came to us one day and said, the Emmaus Road, that whole area is going to be excavated and kind of covered over. If you'd like to see the Emmaus Road, the original stones, the way it would have been in the first century, uh, you need to go and do it. So a group of us said, we're, we're on it. So we got a taxi to take us over, and we started on this, um, on this journey, and I couldn't believe it. The moment we stepped out onto these ancient stones, it was a hot, miserable day, and the dust came up so that we were all coughing, and the women who had scarves put them around their faces. I realized I had a, a handkerchief, and I did it the way that we did when we were kids playing cowboys, and tied it on like I was a bad guy, just so that I could breathe. And I immediately thought of the way that first century people dressed with the hood and they'd cover their faces in the dust. So, you know, there's a very likely reason that they didn't at first recognize him. And honestly, if my wife, three days after her death, had suddenly walked up alongside me as I was taking my morning walk and had had something on her head and had her face covered, even though her, her voice might have seemed familiar, it wouldn't have occurred to me it could possibly be my wife because she just died three days ago. 
And so there are superficial reasons. But the deeper reason, the key, is what Jesus said. I, I love the... Seldom in human history has irony been this exquisite. When he says, what are you talking about? And, and they start talking, and then they say, are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on? <laughs> and he says, oh, tell me what then. <laughs> but finally he says, oh, foolish men, and slow to believe. Note he does not say slow to believe the scriptures. He says slow to believe all, all that the Lord has written. There are scriptures that you and I cherish, that we always bring to mind. But perhaps in the times of great difficulty, when our faith is being tempted and tested, what we most need are those texts. Gordon Fee was uh, one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell, and uh, he used to sometimes say to him, say to us, I want you all to go back this next week and start reading all the verses in the Bible that you didn't underline. <laughs> because they're God's word, too. Slow to believe all that the Lord has said. When I was a boy growing up, we had uh, on the dining room table an alabaster box. Some of you probably immediately recognized from your families what this was. And it had little cards in it, and they were, it was called a promise box. It was very popular among evangelicals back in the 50s. And, and the little cards were filled with the promises of God. And so we were always encouraged, if we were discouraged or something, take out a, you know, this is God's promise to you, pull it out. Don't worry about context or anything else, just pull it out and claim it. And, and it's sweet. I mean, we need to learn and cling to the promises of God in their proper context. But we need to realize that God's word in full is his word to us. Even those passages that we'd rather not read, rather not study, rather not listen to. About taking up our cross daily. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself and take up his cross. In other words, be willing to die to himself, to herself. And so this is going on at a much deeper level. This, just this unbelief. They're claiming what they want. They wanted him to be the Messiah, but their kind of Messiah. But instead, he'd come to do something much deeper than simply overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow their own imperious claim and yours and mine to have the right to determine everything that we do, every place that we go, everything that we say. He came to give us new life. In terms of some of us, I think, think that he came uh, to repair our hearts. Uh, to do bypass surgery, to put in stints. He didn't. He came to do a heart transplant. And the only way a transplant can live is if you take those 
necessary drugs to enable it to live. And we're going to talk now about what those drugs are. How does this new heart stay alive? How do we know him when we meet him on the road? How did he reveal himself to these disciples? Three things. First, he came alongside them. They didn't realize that it was Jesus, but it got their attention. He was with them on the road, even as he has promised to every one of us that he will be with us until the end of the age. So he came alongside them, and then he began opening to them the scriptures, but not as a simple rabbinical synagogue-style Bible study. The problem with a lot of our Bible studies is you can go through the Bible and teach the whole Bible, but if you don't do it from the perspective of Jesus, you won't get a church. You'll get religion. You'll get lots of good advice, lots of history, but you won't get new life. He showed them through all of the scriptures how they related to him. It is realizing that the narrative of scripture can never be understood unless we realize that everything is leading toward him, fulfilled in him, and then leading from him as he, the end of Eastertide, will celebrate it, poured out his spirit and gave himself to his people. So he always takes us to the scriptures, and that's where he wants us to go, but he wants us to learn to read the scriptures aright, to understand them always at their heart as being about him, God made flesh, God not leaving us to ourselves, God fulfilling all of his promises, all of these things, pulling together all of these disparate threads into this glorious moment when God walks into the story that he himself had written and sets all things on an entirely new trajectory. But they still didn't recognize him. They went to the word and Jesus, I mean, who could, who could be a better Bible teacher than Jesus? The resurrected Christ is teaching them. It has set their hearts ablaze. But they still don't recognize him. What happens? They come to Emmaus, to the place where they're going. And so he, he gives them a choice now. He offers to go on. It says he made as though he was going to just go on up the road. But they say, no. No. What we, you've set our hearts on fire, but we are not yet satisfied. You need to come in. That beautiful old hymn that uh, David had a sing last week that was my wife Mary Ann's favorite hymn, Abide With Me. It's written from this text, from that moment. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkened darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, abide with me. That's what they say. It is toward night. Come in, abide with us. And then... The most amazing thing happens. Again, it's so easy for us. 
We've read this so many times, it's easy for us to miss the most arresting thing that happens now. It says that Jesus took the bread and broke it, that Jesus took the chalice. Why is that amazing? Because the master of the feast was the one who did that at a Jewish dinner. He was a guest. He'd just come in, come, come in, eat with us. But the fact that he was the one who broke the bread, he was the one who poured the wine, he was the one who served, showed that they had put him at the master's place. Come in, take the seat of honor, lead this feast. And as he breaks the bread, and as he pours the wine, their eyes are open, and they realize that it's Jesus. How do we meet him? Recognize him. Through his word, yes. We need to be in his word daily, studying it, seeking to understand it. But the most that the word by itself will do is set our hearts ablaze with longing for him. You all have given me the privilege of continuing what I was privileged by the church to do for now 45 years. And that is spend time beyond my own devotions, just in that word, studying it for the sake of his people. But I can't tell you how often I've had pastor friends who were brilliant students of scripture and even wonderful preachers whose lives crashed and burned, whose hearts were set ablaze daily by the word, but whose lives became a disaster. Why? I think the answer is right there. The conclusion that is often drawn is that this is a high sacramentalism, that we need not only the word, but we need the Lord's table. We do need the Lord's table. These are means of grace by which he enables that heart transplant not to be rejected. But I don't think it's calling us simply to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That represents his body and his blood. You and I are his body and his blood in the world. C.S. Lewis captured this so beautifully in pr probably the best-known sermon he ever preached at St. Mary's Oxford. It's called The Weight of Glory, and it was produced as an exquisitely beautiful essay. And he talks about the whole nature of glory and that we're made for this. But he ends by saying, next to the sacrament, next to the Lord's Supper, that is the penultimate expression of the presence and glory of God. But that above that and beyond that is the presence, he says, of our Christian brothers and sisters who are the body and blood. We hear people speak of the mystical body of Christ. There's nothing mystical about it. 
The scripture never speaks of the mystical body. The whole point of the church being the body of Christ is that it is not mystical, it is flesh and blood. It is tactile. And so C.S. Lewis in that beautiful sermon said, you have never meant a mere mortal. The people that we joke with, laugh with, work with, live with, criticize, wound, are immortal creatures whom if we, Lewis said, could see them as they will someday be, would either think that they are immortal terrors from whom we should run in fear, or we would think them gods before whom we would fall down and worship. Because that is our destiny. And he said, you and I are every day helping one another to one of those two ends. We are the body of Christ. How do people around us meet Jesus on the road? How do we, in times of hurt and pain, meet him on the road? We study his word. Our heart is aflame. But we're longing for him. That's what we're to be for one another. That's why when churches are divided and wounded and, and going after each other, it is a denial of the gospel. That's why Paul, in, in the opening of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uses an expression that is so often misunderstood. He says, to, talking to the church, plural, don't you know that you are the temple of the Spirit, that God's Spirit lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And people have taken this and, and thought that it had to do with suicide. It has nothing to do with suicide. It has to do with people who tear churches apart. He says, this is, you're the habitation of the living God. And we are so to live together and love one another that anyone coming in is going to say, Something different is happening here. We're not perfect. We blow it. We do get crossways with each other. We have to repent. We have to make up. We have to. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. And this is the only way that the, church, that the world will ever meet Jesus. They can hear about him. They can long for him. But they only can meet him in the midst of God's people. And that's where you and I, when we are wounded and stumbling around and hurting, again meet him face to face in the faces and the love and the embrace of one another. When Jesus meets you on the road tomorrow, will you recognize him? Would you stand with us and sing?
be 